Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would come and make that which seems complicated to be simple, that which uh, oftentimes is confusing. I pray that you would make it understandable. Father, I pray that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I also pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. I need to do a little poll this morning, um, and I need you to be honest, and, and I won't call you out, but if you enjoyed math when you were in high school, could you raise your hand? Seriously. If you didn't enjoy it, but at least you could do it, could you raise your hand? Okay, everyone whose hands are raised, there's one thing I know for certain about you, is you did not have Coach Jones for algebra. That's not his name, by the way, lest he somehow be listening to this. When I started high school, as a freshman in high school, I signed up for Algebra 1. I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and my algebra teacher was Coach Jones. He was the football coach, and apparently you had to also teach a class in order to be qualified to coach football. And so... I have no, to this day, I have no idea. I think sometime during my freshman year of high school is when I decided I should just join the Army because this is not going to work for me. No matter what he did, it seemed to make things more confusing, and he had this habit of, of erasing the board real fast but never clapping out his eraser, so the board just got foggier and foggier. At some point, I gave up. On the other hand, in my sophomore year, I did have a, a good teacher, Mrs. Caracuzzo, that is her name, um, taught me geometry. I made straight A's in geometry. I went south again in algebra too, but A's in geometry, she was a great teacher. And I remember all the high school guys thought she was, she was pretty too. That helped, I think. Prettier than Coach Jones, that's for sure. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's interesting when you think about things like math. You know, I didn't really have parents around who could coach me through it. Depending on how I was taught, that's what I was stuck with. And oftentimes when you look at the book of Revelation, sometimes when it's taught, you end up being much more confused when you leave than when you came in. Sometimes you leave feeling like you've been listening to Coach Jones trying to factor polynomials, and other times you feel like, you know, that's, that's not as bad as I thought it would be. That's how I felt in geometry. It's actually, it's not necessarily simple, but, you know, I, I get that. I can do that. You know, today as we enter into, now that I'm back, we're jumping back into the book of Revelation and we're going to look at some things that a lot of people, depending on who you talk to, are very complicated. I mean, they're, they're, they're so complicated that ultimately you might even end up starting a cult. Who knows? Depending on your reading of what we're going to look at. My goal this morning, with what we're going to look at in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, is that you'll walk out of here, instead of being confused, that you'll walk out of here saying, you know, that actually makes sense. I get that. The book of Revelation isn't hard. It shouldn't be hard. So as we jump into the book of Revelation, you know, we're going to look today at the 144,000, and, you know, and, and uh, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings, you know that uh, one does not simply preach on the 144,000 um, without looking at the big picture first. So as we jump into Revelation chapter 7, which by the way, most, a lot of people when they look at the book of Revelation, you've heard me say before, they read it, they get to chapter 3, and then after that they stop because it just seems too confusing, it's too overwhelming, and functionally speaking, the rest of the book means nothing to them. 
And so we've sort of waded into that. But in order to keep your head above water as you get into chapters 4 through 22, you've got to keep bringing yourself back to the big picture. Because if you don't keep the big picture in mind, it's really easy to get bogged down in the weeds. And so what's the big picture of the book of Revelation? The big picture of the book of Revelation in many ways is the exact same as the big picture of every other book in the Bible, is that it's an explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Simple as that. And you remember I told you the, 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 the book of Revelation teaches on one hand that Jesus has won. In other words, in the past, on the cross, he has defeated all the powers of evil. He has defeated all the powers of sin. He has defeated the curse that, cre- that is over all of the earth. It is completely and utterly done. There's no more work that he has to do to accomplish that. On the other hand, he still is cleaning up the mess and will be from that time until the very end of time. And so in the future, he will win, ultimately. That when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. It's actually better than the way it's supposed to be in the book of Genesis. And then, of course, Jesus not only has won and he will win, but Jesus is winning right now. And that's where the book of Revelation, I think, comes in most handy. Because if you're a Christian at all, and you're honest at all, most of the time you don't feel like you're winning, do you? Nothing is easy. There's not a lot of joy, at least Christians don't exhibit a lot of joy all the time. And the question is why? It's because we really at some level don't believe that Jesus is winning. That whatever hard is going on in my life that he's actually using right now in order to, to bring out the best possible result for me and everyone involved. And the book of Revelation, what it does is it continues to remind us over and over and over again that Jesus is winning. And the churches that received this letter originally, they needed that. You remember the, the audience of this book originally was a church or seven churches that needed to hear some encouragement because all of them on one hand were experiencing persecution at some level. On the other hand, all of them were failing at some level in their ability to witness to the outside world. In other words, they sort of were, were closeted up in the church. And the book of Revelation says you need to get out and and witness, tell people about Jesus, get out and redeem all the creation on behalf of Jesus. And if your answer is, well, it's hard, I could get hurt, I could get killed, I could get martyred, the book of Revelation says exactly. Exactly. And where is the encouragement in the midst of that? Well, that's the encouragement that you're going to find once you start getting into chapter 7. We'll look at that in a minute. Also, I wanted to remind you about uh, the whole idea of symbolism in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, uh, at least I've told you before, that Typically speaking, whenever something can be taken as symbolic rather than literal, you should take it symbolically. That when, it, when you have the option of taking something symbolically or literally, you should probably take it symbolically. And that includes numbers, including this number, 144,000. That's the, one of the numbers what, you know, when you get to the book of Revelation and people just have no idea what to do with it. What is it? Who is it? We're going to answer all of that today and more, maybe. I don't want to make too big of promises. In order to understand what we're going to look at today, the 144,000, chapter 7, you've got to build some context. If you remember, we were looking at chapter 6 the last time I was here. And in chapter 6, basically what happens is part of the problem with Revelation is, is you need to preach chapter 4 and 5 together, really, to, for it to make the most sense. You need to preach 5 and 6 together for it to make the most sense. 
and six and seven together, and you have to chop them up unless you guys want to be here till three. Which, by the way, my preaching clock is broken, so you might be. Um, but it, but it, at any rate, remember in chapter six, what happens in chapter four? You see God on the throne. Chapter five, you see Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has overcome on the throne. And in chapter six, he starts breaking these seals. And we start this pattern. There are seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of God's wrath. And as Jesus breaks, starts breaking seals, it's, it's, it's sort of beginning this sort of end time trial and tribulation. And you remember I told you that I think it's in real time. In other words, that that all started at the very moment of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. That's ongoing. And that pattern repeats itself at least three times in the book of Revelation. So what you're seeing in chapter 6 is really a history of redemption crammed down into a little tiny spot. And the first four things, the first four seals that were broken, if you remember, were horses. Jesus breaks them, and the first thing you see is a white horse, and that was the horse that came out to conquer humanity. And then the red horse, which was the horse that had to deal with war. And then the black horse, which had to deal with death and famine. And then the pale horse, which had to deal certainly with death and with Hades. And it sort of summarized the rest of them. And it's this horrid picture of these horsemen being just released throughout the earth. And remember, I told you that it's, not, it's okay to listen to the book of Revelation and feel bad, or at least feel moved, as opposed to trying to, to parse everything out like it was math. And so you, you hear the, seven, the four horsemen are released upon the earth, and then the next scene you see is the martyrs crying out, how long, how long until we have justice on the earth? How long? And you remember what God said to them? Rest a little while until the full number of your brothers who is to be killed is also killed. Okay, that's not the answer you want, really, if you're asking God for justice. But then what happens after the martyrs? Then, as soon as they ask for that, God says, wait a little while, but then it actually happens. And cosmic upheaval begins, right? The moon turns to blood and the stars start falling out of the sky and people who don't believe are running for the hills and they are literally crying out for the rocks to fall on them in the last day. And the very last words of chapter 6 are these. Who can stand? The wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb have been unleashed upon unbelieving humanity. And the question is, who can stand in the midst of this? And you have to think, John was recording all this after the fact, after he had all these visions. And do you notice that the visions, that the seals stop at six, but there's seven of them? Why does he do that? I imagine that John, as he's recording this vision, is, is recording it and he records the horses and then he records the martyrs and then he records all this judgment happening and people crying out, who could stand? And he's sort of sitting there going, you know, that's sort of a drag, right? This letter is supposed to encourage these churches and it doesn't seem very encouraging even now as I'm writing it. So when the, when the, when the people cry out, who can stand? Maybe I should just stop for a minute and encourage the church by answering that question. Who can stand the day of his wrath? Chapter 7 in the book of Revelation answers that question. Who can stand when the wrath of the Lamb is unleashed? And who is it that can stand? It's those who are sealed. Simple as that. How many are sealed? If you read it literally, 144,000. So isn't that encouraging? 
out of billions and billions of people that are going to that are potentially experience the wrath of the Lamb, 144,000 of them are going to get away scot-free. That gives you like a point zero 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 something chance, or maybe it doesn't. Maybe you have a better chance than that. We got to look at a few things. Part of the the of understanding chapter 7 is understanding the, the chronology of what's going on in chapter 6 and 7. Remember, biblical writers are, are almost always completely unlike modern writers. In other words, they're not usually particularly concerned with precise chronology of things. When they tend to put things in their story is when it makes sense to them to make their point. And so what, am I, what point am I making? Let me read to you the first few verses here. He says in verse 1, he says, After I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, and the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm, the earth, harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So let me read that last one. He says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. So there are a couple things to keep in mind here. This, that, by the way, tells you everything you need to know about the chronology of, of events here. Right? How so? Well, for one, remember I told you, in order to understand the book of Revelation, one, the, the first priority you have to do is say it's about Jesus. And it's about his gospel. But the second thing you have to realize is that it almost completely and utterly is rooted in Old Testament imagery. In other words, there's almost no image in the book of Revelation that has to do with something new in the future. Even if it's a future event, its imagery is rooted in the Old Testament. And remember the four horsemen of the apocalypse we talked about? They came from Zechariah chapter 6. That the four horsemen showed up there. Those four horsemen are the ones who, who bring about judgment. Well, in that same chapter, those four horsemen or chariots are also referred to as the four winds of heaven. In other words, the angels that are restraining the winds of God's judgment here in chapter 7, almost everyone agrees that they are identical with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And Jesus says to them, before you actually unleash all this stuff in chapter 6, Make sure that the servants of God are sealed on their forehead. What is the purpose of sealing them on their forehead? It's too bad I don't have a baptism today because whenever I baptize babies, you, you know, I always talk about the Wizard of Oz. Right? Because if you've read the book, The Wizard of Oz, what you know is that when Dorothy meets Glinda the Good Witch and before she takes off down the road... The good witch kisses her on the forehead and, and functionally seals her. And that way, whenever evil comes upon Dorothy, the flying monkey, they sort of flinch and they cringe because the first thing they see is the seal upon Dorothy's forehead. And so what is being said here is before you unleash wrath upon the earth, make sure that my servants, those, the, the 144,000, make sure they are sealed on their forehead that while they might have to experience the hardships of this world, they might have to suffer, they might have all these things, spiritually speaking, nothing can touch them. And so the chronology looks something like this. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, the saints are sealed. Chapter 6, 1 through 7, you have judgment being released on the earth. And chapter 7, 9 through 14, are the saints at rest. 
In other words, chronologically speaking, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, comes before chapter 6. Before the, the, the wrath is released, before all of these things take place, the servants of God are sealed. So, because if, that, if it wasn't that way, if chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, came after chapter 6, there would be no use of sealing them. Why bother sealing them? Because they've already made it through the, the time of God's wrath. And so chronologically, that's important because chapter 7, 1 through 8, and then chapter 6, and chapter 7, 9 through 17, in some sense, is a whole history of redemption of God's people in a nutshell. And it's redemption from the perspective of the people who experience it, not from necessarily the perspective of the Lamb. So what does it mean to be sealed? First, when you think about sealing, the, the most obvious place to look when you, when you go back to the Old Testament is Ezekiel chapter 9. And in Ezekiel chapter 9, before the Babylonians come in as a sign of God's judgment, God tells an angel to go through and to put a, a mark on the forehead of all the faithful Israelites and to do not to mark the unfaithful Israelites because they will experience God's judgment. So even in that part right there, being, being part of ethnic Israel at that particular moment means nothing. What is important is whether you have been faithful and therefore have a seal on your forehead. So even in Ezekiel 9, some in Israel are sealed and others in Israel are not sealed. Just being Israel is not good enough, which we'll look at that in depth in a few minutes. Ezekiel 9 seems to in some sense to be built upon Exodus 12. Remember in Exodus 12, the, the, there have been nine plagues that have happened and Pharaoh will not relent. And so God says, here's what I want you to do. Kill a lamb without blemish, every household, and to put, to, to put a mark over the door. And when the destroying angel comes through, he'll pass over your house. But what's important is that he sees the blood upon you. And if you don't have the blood upon your house, you don't survive. So there's precedent in the Old Testament for this happening. But even in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says this, he says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what does Paul mean there? What does it mean to be sealed? What it means to be sealed in many ways, like the Wizard of Oz, it means to be under God's protection. You see, whoever have been sealed, according to Paul, those who have trusted Jesus are sealed, and they will never face the wrath of the Lamb. Why will they never face the wrath of the Lamb? They'll never face the wrath of Jesus because Jesus himself has borne their wrath. Jesus has taken their sins, and they, by the Holy Spirit, received this mark. If you're a Christian here today, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You, figuratively speaking, have a mark upon your forehead. Because the mark not only says you're under God's protection, but it also says that you belong to God. You belong to God. Remember, Paul says, you have been bought with a price. And so to be sealed, basically anyone who has trusted Jesus is one of those who has been sealed. And if that's the case, then what does it mean to say that those who have been sealed are only 144,000? Does that cause you any dissonance? Should. Let's look a little further. Verse 4, he says, And I heard the number sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Remember, I've told you this before, but it's important to, to hear again, 
is that oftentimes when John is, is having these visions, he, does, he says the same thing. He says, I heard one thing, and then I turned and I saw another thing. Remember chapter 5? He says, I heard that the lion from the tribe of Judah had conquered, and I looked and saw a lamb as if it had been slain. But the lion who had conquered that he heard about is the same thing that he had seen. And in this case, he says, I heard those who were sealed were 144,000. I looked and I saw people from every tribe and every nation and every people group without number. So somehow, the 144,000 also have something to do with this people without number. He heard one thing, but he saw another thing. And so let me just give you the, the right answer now, at least to what I think is the right answer, and then I'll give you what I think is the evidence for that after. The 144,000 at the end of the day are the complete number of God's people. That before the creation of the earth, God determined that he would, he would call out a people to himself, Old Testament and New Testament saints, and it was a certain number, our confession says. And the 144,000 is a symbolic number that stands for not just completion. If it was just completion, he would, have say, I, he would have said, I saw the seven saints that were sealed, or I saw the, the ten saints that were sealed. But in order to make something really big in the New Testament or the Old Testament, you start multiplying it times each other, and you square it, and you cube it. And so he said, what I saw was 12, which is an important number, squared times 10 cubed. That's big in the New Testament. In other words, it's more than you could imagine. That's almost always what's meant by something like that when you say 144,000. So it's the complete number of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament. And the question is, what are, you, what are your option, options? I mean, there are two options. You don't have to buy what I just told you. You see, one option is if you read chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, extremely literally, you really only end up with one option that the 144,000 are ethnic Israel. Simple as that. It says 144,000 sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel. Does that work? We'll see in a minute. If you read it symbolically, you really can only end up in another place, which is that the 144,000 is the church, those who make up the church from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? You still with me? You're always quiet, but even more so today. So is this Israel or the church, the 144,000? The first thing you've got to consider, of course, is the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament say about Israel and the church? Or where would the Old Testament lead us when it, with regard to the relationship of Jewish and Gentile? Well, remember, the whole, the whole ball got rolling with this guy named Abram. That God called Abram and he said, I want you to go to a land I will show you and I will give you descendant and I will make you, a, I will give you descendants without number. Chapter 7, again, he reiterates, I promise you land and I promise you a descendant who will fix all the problems Adam and Eve started. Chapter 7, his name is changed. Chapter 17, his name is changed and he is called Abraham, a father of many nations. Chapter 12, he said, I will make you a blessing to all the families on the earth. Not some of the families on the earth, Abraham. All of them. And have you ever thought of this, that Abraham himself was not Jewish? Abraham was not a Hebrew. 
Abraham was a Gentile. He's a pagan whom God initiated with. You ever thought about that? And you see, you make your way up to, to David, and David himself, he's not completely Jewish either. You ever read the book of Ruth? David's grandmother is a Moabite. You ever read the genealogy of Jesus? Even Jesus himself is not completely, purely, ethnically Jewish. You see, in the Old Testament, there are these promises that happen over and over again. They're made to Israel, but oftentimes they're realized in the context of the church. Remember a few, that's probably a month or so ago now, where John referred to one of the churches as you will be made into a kingdom of priests. Well, that promise was made to Israel, and yet he says to the church, you will be the one who has this. Now, am I saying that the church replaces Israel? Absolutely not. What I'm saying is that the church is the logical outworking of Israel. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation are the logical outworking. And you see that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, what do you see over and over again? One of the big themes of the New Testament, besides Jesus, is to break down the dividing wall between Jewish and Gentile. The book of Acts is about that. Almost everything Paul writes is about that. In fact, the book of Galatians is almost specifically about that. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean to experience the blessing to Abraham? Paul says over and over, what it means to be a child of Abraham is to have faith in Jesus. He says, not all Israel are Israel. Children according to the flesh, no. Children according to faith, yes. And so after Paul spends five chapters, six chapters, tearing down this dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, you know, remember how he closes the letter to Galatians? He says, blessings be upon the Israel of God. Now he is either really crazy and trying to undo everything he just said for six chapters, or he believes that the Jews and Gentiles together in the church are actually the true Israel of God. They're, the, they're, they're the, the ultimate Israel that God promised. Also in the book of James, remember how James addresses the book? To the twelve tribes dispersed. Why would James do that? Why would he write a book that's just to Jewish people, not to Jew, Jews, to, to the church as well? The book of Revelation does the same thing. You know, when you read the book of Revelation, you almost hear nothing about the fact that ethnic Israel will be separated out and be treated special. In fact, this, what we're looking at today, is the only place that you could ever even begin to get that from. Maybe. In fact, in the book of Revelation, what you have is churches that are composed of Jews and Gentiles. And imagine a church that was composed, in the first century, it's composed of Jews and Gentiles, and they're reading this letter out loud, and all of a sudden, the Gentile Christians, who maybe most of them sit over here, and most of the Jewish Christians sit over here, they're, look, they're eyeballing in these pews over here because maybe those guys are more special than us. Is that what John is trying to say here? I don't think so. The other thing you have to take into account is the list of the tribes. If John was really making the point that this is all about ethnic Israel, he would not have fiddled around with the, how he listed the tribes. For one, he doesn't put them in the order they're supposed to be in. Judah's not first. Notice how he says 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. That's the first thing he lists, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. Reuben should be first, and yet he writes Judah first. And he leaves Dan completely out. 
Now, why would he leave the tribe of Dan out? Some people say that's because Dan fell into idolatry. The easiest answer is by leaving Dan out, you end up with an even number 12. And he's trying to make a point here about completion. But what's more important is that he put the tribe of Judah first. Remember in Genesis chapter 9, he promised, God promised to, to Judah, even though he wasn't born first, but that all his brothers would bow to him and that he would have this iron scepter forever over all peoples. And Ezekiel chapter 37 basically says, it, it makes the case that eventually all the tribes will be subsumed and assimilated into Judah so that really at the end of time there will really only be one tribe and it will be the tribe of Judah. And we know who is the head over the tribe of Judah. It's this lion who seems like he's a lamb who is slain and his name is Jesus. And so if you belong to Jesus, you are part of the tribe of Judah. And if you're part of the tribe of Judah, you are part of the tribe that envelops all tribes. So who is he speaking about here? And finally... Chapter 14, if you're going to take the 144,000 literally here, you have to take it literally in chapter 14. And chapter 14 says that the 144,000 are not just those who are chosen out. It says they are chosen out, but they are also all males and they are all virgins. So at the end of time, the only ones who are going to be sealed is 144,000 male virgins, period. That'd be a pretty boring place, I think. Either that or would be fighting, a lot of fighting all the time. What's the point here? Well, that actually, chapter 14, helps us understand really what the 144,000 might really be. Because in the Old Testament, again, going back to the Old Testament, the only time you count people like this is when you're going to war. When you are preparing for battle, you muster the troops from every tribe and you count them. You perform a census. And you remember what those men who are going into battle are supposed to do? Abstain from sexual relations. So at the end of the day, the 144,000 are not just God's people, but they're an army. If you're consistent with every other place in the Old Testament where people are counted like this, you only do a census when you're getting ready to go into battle. And so where does that leave us with the 144,000? Basically, you have God's people who form an army. And if this is prior to all of the trials and tribulations that happen after the resurrection of Jesus, what does that make God's people who form an army? You've heard me talk about this before. Another word to use is you could call them the church militant. Remember in the book of Revelation, you see the church in two ways. You see the church militant and the church triumphant. By the way, chapter, uh, verses 9 through 14 are the church triumphant. Church militant, trials, tribulations, church triumphant. That what John is saying here is that the complete number of the people of God in this world now also form an army. And what is the purpose of an army? It is to go to battle. And what is the problem that all the churches struggle with in the book of Revelation? They're all sort of cowering. And John is continually telling them, you need to engage the world. And how does the church engage the world? The church engages the world the same way Jesus engages the world. It should. The church, should, the church wins the world the same way Jesus wins the world. And how did Jesus win the world? Jesus won the world by dying. How should the church win the world? Chapter 6, look at the martyrs by dying. 
In other words, it's completely ironic that the church now forms this army and it's called the church militant and the way that we win is by giving up. The way that we win is by dying. The way we have life is by dying. Does that sound familiar to you? It's all throughout Jesus' teaching. You know, I, don't, I forget how many years ago it's been now. When I, the, the day I graduated from ranger school. You know, for me, many of you who know me, well... I could mess up anything. The most important day of, well, one of the most important days of my life, can, can I find a way that I can somehow make it controversial? You see, I went to ranger school, I lost about 25 pounds, and at the end of ranger school, it's Florida phase, and you end up drinking a lot of swamp water. You're supposed to put iodine tablets and stuff in it, and sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. And I had a touch of dysentery by graduation day. My name happens to be Allen, which puts me on the front rank of anything that's going on. And so for Ranger School graduation, Tommy Allen was, was front and center of everybody standing at attention while some general yammered on and yammered on and yammered on. And I, at some point, was confronted with a decision. I either stand front and center in front of this general and create a mess that no one's going to like, or I could try and excuse myself without being seen. I chose the second. I came to attention, took a step back, left face, and went off into the wood line for a few minutes. Came back, and after everything was over, all hell broke loose. You're not supposed to do that, by the way, if you ever think about going to ranger school. The instructors were upset. The, the general was upset. But you know who wasn't upset? The guy who sent me to ranger school. He walked out, just like everyone else, and pinned my ranger tab on, said he was proud of me. And you know what? The fact that I had that ranger tab, which no one could ever take away, and the fact that I had the approval of the one who sent me, I honestly could not give a hoot what the general was saying about me. I didn't care that other people were mad because what I knew is that I had graduated and that I had finished and the person that I had to please, that's who I was going home with. I wasn't living with these other people. And the same is true here, that you and I form God's army, but the beauty of it is, is the only person you have to, to please already approves of you. The only person that you have to, 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 to gain the approval of has already sealed you. He's already pinned your tab on in fact, he's already said that you are successful before you even walk out the door. Remember I've told you this story about my, my wife doing her first triathlon. And she was so nervous. And the thing that calmed her down, I said, Judy, it was the day before. I said, they gave you your t-shirt today, right? And she said, yeah. And I said, so no matter how you do tomorrow, you've got that t-shirt. For, for all people who see you know, you're, you won. Never thought of it that way. I'm running a marathon in October. I've already ordered my T-shirt. <laughs> Maybe I won't have to go through with it. In other words, what the gospel of Jesus says is this, is that if you have trusted him, you have been sealed, not just now, but for, for the foundation of the world. And although life may be hard, it may be difficult, that trials and tribulations will come, nothing can harm you or touch you or snatch you out of his hand. Remember that. Let me pray for us. 
Father, I pray this morning that you would continue to encourage us with the gospel, continue to encourage us that, that in fact, we are the 144,000, that we are part of this great tribe that next week we'll see is without, without number, that it's so big that no one can even count it. And I pray that you would just draw us to yourself. In Christ's name, amen and amen. At this point, if you are able to stand, I'd ask you to stand with me, and we will sing the doxology together.